Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Coming up on today's show, Microsoft and Sony are still beefing about Call of Duty. Speaking of Call of Duty, it is selling a lot. And we talked to Cliff Blazinski about his memoir, Control Freak. Welcome to another episode of the What's Good Games podcast, your source for video game news, commentary, analysis, and funny stuff every Friday. I'm Andrea Renee, joined by the one and the only Mrs. Rihanna Emanuel Pena. Hello, I'm here, I think. <laughs> we thought you were frozen. Your face was just like, I was like, oh no. Am I here? <laughs> Girl. <laughs> The existential question we're all asking ourselves, am I here? Hi. <laughs> what? what just happened? What happened? Are you okay? <laughs> My internet went like, JK, you're not online. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then it came back and I hear the show is introing and I'm like, oh shit, am I here? <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. And of course, Brittany Brombacher is here as well. Uh, hello. Hi, 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 hi. Hi. Hello. So a little bit of context before we jump into the show this week. We are actually recording this week's episode a little late into the evening. We had a wonderful guest, Lucy James, join us for our God of War Ragnarok spoiler cast, which is going to be posted the week of the Game Awards. So that'll be Friday, December 9th, when you can listen to that episode. But it means this week's regular episode is a few cocktails in. So uh, I just want to throw that out there right now. We're having a good time. Uh, Yes, we are. And apparently Rihanna's internet is not having a good time. So we will do our best to make sure that she is here and present for as much of the show as her internet allows. You know, it's just on an early vacation. That's all. (laughs) You know, it's Thanksgiving week. It's turkey week. Everybody's thinking about taking the weekend off. Look, she's got the football, turkey, and beer. It's all you need this week. I like how they look significantly larger from this angle. Good for you. Are you talking about the beer or my my boobies? I mean, they look great. You want full screen? Oh yeah, yeah. I never get to want my girl. Oh, oh. There you go. Oh, yeah, girl. You got the illusion of a curve. Optical illusion of a bra, let me tell you what, because these babies are pointing south, but that's fine. It was worth feeding my child for eight months. I did it. We had a very interesting conversation ahead of starting the show about Brittany and I's breastfeeding experience and what it has done to our said breasts. And, uh, you know, we understand why the concept of wet nurses exists. And that's a conversation for another time, everybody, because we want to say thank you to this <laughs> one's Patreon producers. <laughs> Jerry's Godson, Alex Agopoulos, <sighs> Ferris Atia, Justin Foshi, and Punctified, all who have been with us through way more ridiculous shenanigans yeah, than what's already happened so far in this episode. So thank you to them for supporting us. And thank you to everybody at patreon.com slash what's good games who supports us here at what's good games and helps us bring our voices to the video games community. 
Did y'all know that there are just not enough women in podcasts talking about video games? Surprise. There's a tragic amount. It's really a tragic sad. amount. Really sad. We spent a good 30, 45 minutes a couple months back trying to find all women ran video game podcasts that upload consistently and regularly. And there's literally none out there other than What's Good Games. And that is so messed up. There's a lot of yeah. reasons for that. I'm sure this is not the show for that because it would be a whole ass discussion in itself. But yes. So your support means a lot to us and it means a lot to a lot of other people in the community. So thank you to everybody who keeps helping us bring the show to you week after week, including Turkey Day week here <laughs> in the United <laughs> States. <laughs> oh, good gobble. Yes, good the gobble. turkey sound. Oh, do you remember when we made those adorable little hand turkeys? I still have mine. I'm just throwing that God out there. God bless you. And I brought God it out you. a couple Thanksgivings ago, and my parents thought, or someone thought it was made by, like, my little cousin. I was like, no, that was made mm-hmm. by me. An adult. <laughs> You're like, I have a video that proves that I made it. Would you like to watch it? And they're like, no, we actually wouldn't. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But now you can have your spawn make one and it'll be... And it'll look better than mine. That's the sad truth of it. Listen, I've never been gifted in the art of arts and crafts. It's just never a thing. Your Microsoft paint skills would like to disagree. Thank you. Yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. I am an artiste. Direct descendant of Bob Ross. Uh, I'm you not. You just work in a different medium. Mm-hmm. Paper is not your medium. Every artist has their medium and paper is just not yours. And that's okay. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know. I'm just helping you realize your artistic potential. All right. Let's <laughs> Get into the news, everybody. <gasps> this week, Microsoft has apparently come a little bit more clean or open. I don't know what the word here is about the deal with Sony in regards to Call of Duty. So this story, I feel like, has been going on for months at this point. Mm-hmm. So y'all may or may not remember that Activision made a deal with PlayStation a while back. I believe it was like circa... 2013 2014 right when ps4 was getting ready to launch and how they decided they wanted to pay activision to get call of duty exclusively on playstation for the next generation instead of on xbox because during the 360 era call of duty was always doing their exclusive releases for dlc and early stuff on xbox they were base and then activision's like what have you done for me lately (laughs) you know daddy xbox and daddy xbox like Mm, you want too much money. You're too expensive to take out on dates. And so they went, hey, SIE, what you doing tonight? (laughs) And they said, turns out we need a shooter in our portfolio. We'll pay you. And it worked out. (laughs) It just isn't doing it for me anymore. (laughs) I just really want a history of the video game industry depicted like that. I feel like it'd be so much more interesting to follow. <laughs> it probably would be, even though I'd probably get some of my biz dev facts wrong and people who actually did the deals would be listening and being like, that's not how that went. Like, but it's more fun my way, it okay? Is. It's more fun. All right, so the actual story, everybody, from Eurogamer, as intense government scrutiny of Microsoft's $69 billion nice. deal, nice. giggity, with Activision Blizzard continues, can you believe we're at the end of 2022? And the deal's not done yet, everybody, as we anticipated it wouldn't be, has told the New York Times that it offered Sony a 10-year deal to keep the series on PlayStation earlier this month. Microsoft has been increasingly forthright in discussing its willingness to keep Call of Duty on Sony's platform, and reports in September revealed the company had initially pledged to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation, quote, at least several more years beyond Activision's existing deal, an arrangement that PlayStation boss Jim Ryan would go on to call inadequate on many levels. Just like my ex-boyfriend, hey. That's a good word. It is a good one. Inadequate, yeah. But we also know that Jim Ryan loves to put his foot in his mouth in public spheres. 
Not sure why, because he's a smart man, but just sometimes doesn't do great at public speaking. Xbox boss Phil Spencer publicly pledged to continue releasing Call of Duty games on Sony's consoles for, quote, as long as there's a PlayStation out there to ship to. Wow, that's a very specific way to say that. Uh, like but now talking to the New York Times, <laughs> almost does, right? Microsoft has revealed the terms of its latest offer to Sony in more specific detail, saying that on the 11th of November, it proposed a 10-year deal to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation, and Sony did not respond to the publication's request for comment. Mm. Oh, so apparently they've just got, you know, some things going back and forth, back and forth. This reminds me of the Apple Epic saga that we covered a lot. I think we were covering that during the Westwood Games Live era because I feel like we were all just talking about it all the time and this is a whole ass thing like I'm kind of sick of hearing about it but at the same time it is fascinating to kind of get some info on how these deals work and we're not even hearing half of it let's be honest but it is interesting to hear Phil Spencer's this quote here as long as there's a PlayStation out there to ship to because we all know if you're gonna like do a deal and make a contract you're never gonna put a clause in that that infinitely binds you to something so however that's worded I'm sure that's not what was actually technically meant the 10-year thing like okay I can see that but I don't know like how do you think this I think this deal is going to go through but how do you guys like look into your crystal ball how is this Call of Duty deal going to pan out knowing that PlayStation recently was the top selling console you know they're going neck and neck with Switch and no one's trying to do a 10-year deal with Switch right now I mean, Switch, like, you know, do your damn thing. You're clearly, like, selling gangbusters. But for when it comes to the AAA, especially the multiplayer online-focused development scene, it's not about making a deal with Switch. It's about making a deal with who has the most install base. And PlayStation has had the most install base since the era of the, honestly, I think ever? I feel like Xbox has never surpassed PlayStation and install base. I would definitely need to back that up with hard data that I'm not going to look up in this instant, but I'm feeling very confident. Well, like 360 PlayStation has perpetually outsold Xbox worldwide. I would be curious all, uh, for all time, like each console generation. To look I don't at the think three, that there's a single console that's sold more. I'd be curious to know the numbers for the Xbox 360 versus the PlayStation 3. So here's an article from 2019. Who finally won, PS3 or Xbox 360? And I'm going to see if I can find the stats in here. So if you want to just like keep talking, I'll let you know if I can find them. Sure. I would love to be proven wrong, but I'm still confident PS3 sold more globally. In the United States, 360 probably won. But we're continuing on here. So this deal's not done. And the reason why it's not done is because Microsoft Gaming's acquisition of Activision Blizzard isn't done yet. And so thus, this marketing deal isn't finished. But it's just the the verbiage around it feels weird for some reason. But also, like, Call of Duty is the bell of the ball. Like, it sells more units than any other game. They had a banger of a year, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, how they've beat their own records. And we're going to talk more. The next story, in fact, is that Call of Duty Warzone 2, which Rihanna's going to talk about in the next segment and Hands On, mm-hmm. has hit 25 million players in less than a week. Holy Apparently, crap. people are back into Warzone in a big way because Warzone 2.0 was hotly anticipated and everyone's like, mm, something different than Fortnite. Let's go. <laughs> I, I just want a website, though, where it's like, who sold more consoles? And then the article is just one sentence and it gives you the well, information. The first thing that I got on Google as of April 2019 was that the PS3 have moved 
87.4 million units, mm-hmm. surpassing the final recorded Xbox 360 tally of 84 million. Okay, back so in it 2014. was close then, but it wasn't okay. It was close, but yeah, PS3 sold 87.4, 360, 84. Okay, great. There we go. Anywho, let's talk about fucking Call of Duty, man. Yeah, so Call of Duty Warzone is the hotness. Everyone's into it. But apparently, there's some (laughs) early hiccups that have been slowing Warzone's momentum, according to IGN. The Battle Royale has experienced several frustrating glitches. Shortly after its debut, some players took to Reddit, surprise, surprise, (laughs) to report a strange (laughs) error locking them out, asking them to buy Modern Warfare 2 even if they already owned it. That's a bad glitch to get. Another glitch turns some models invisible, leaving the unsuspecting out in the open and shot by opponents that are hidden <laughs> thanks to the issue. That seems like a bad bug to run into That's that your opponents are literally invisible in the world. Seems unfair. Like, it's not cheating because it's not their fault, but it feels like cheating. Feels like cheating. Players' recordings of the invisibility glitch show users, like apparently YouTuber Super Evan, taking shots and dying without a clear source of damage. But the game's kill cam reveals where the invisible players were hiding in plain sight post death. Yeah, it's it's so, been incredibly buggy. I was actually watching Dr. Lupo on YouTube streaming in a tournament. It was a creator's tournament and they had so many game breaking bugs that they had to DC three rounds of the tournament. Yikes. And they just finally said, wow. fine, we'll just do one final round winner takes all. It's still very bad. <laughs> but it's still fun. <laughs> but it's still fun. We'll I talk get about it. it later. But yeah, it's it's got some work cut out for it. It's hard for these big BRs, and I mean, when you have twenty five million people playing the same game, it's going to push it to the, the break everything. Max. It's going to break literally everything. Yeah, that is such a huge the number. idea that twenty five million people have played this game since it launched is a little bonkers because very few dev teams can manage two or three million people playing their game at launch. And we expect the best of the best from Activision because they've been the creme de la crop for literally a decade now when it comes to multiplayer. But even they're like, yo, our servers are not ready for this many people. We can't, we can't handle it. The computers are busted. Our launches, Bria, someone who's played the Call of Duty multiplayers for a long time, is this, and I think I know the answer, but is this pretty typical for these launches out the gate when it comes yeah. to Call of Duty? Absolutely. And this one has been, I don't want to say it's worse than others, because obviously we're all going to have dampened memory of of previous launches, but it does feel like these bugs are stranger. (laughs) I would say there's more different types of bugs, especially like someone just being invisible on the map, like falling through the map happens, guns disappearing happens. You open your loadout and you pick something and it's a different gun once you load into the screen. Like all of these things keep happening. And there are all so many different types of bugs that it just really just shows this, this system isn't able to handle this much. It's just part of it. It feels to me like bugs that you would get when you play like an open world action adventure or an RPG that are appearing in Warzone. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of similarities between the open world instances they're trying to do with Warzone 2.0 and some of these open world action games that we get. But it feels to me almost like they launched it too quickly, that the game needed more work and more dev time. But there was clearly pressure internally to get Warzone 2.0 out the gate, though I don't know why, because Modern Warfare 2 is clearly slain right now. Yeah. They're fine. Like, why push the team to get Warzone 2.0 out unless they're trying to post specific numbers by Holiday, end of fiscal or whatever, yeah. end, of the, or end of calendar year? It needs time. But, like, Call of Duty doesn't do early access, right? That's not their bag. Like, the de facto, like, premium multiplayer experience in the world and it feels like they maybe somebody inside maybe Bob and marketing 
<laughs> I see you, Bob. Is like the Call of Duty brand doesn't do fuck on early access. But like they could maybe benefit from it and they would maybe find out some of these things and their community wouldn't be so mad. But the good news here is don't forget, we're a zone free. It's free to play. It's free. Doesn't mean that a bunch of people then buy season passes and stuff and are like, hey, my game's still broken. But and I you think, can technically play the game for free. I think Rhee hit the nail on the head. She's like, it's broken, but it's still fun. And there you go. You know, we are conditioned as a gamer folk that our games are probably going to be broken at launch. You know, even when we play games pre-release, you just accept that there's going to be a day one patch and it's going to fix it. Pokemon, except for Pokemon. But I'll talk about that later. <sighs> uh, but I mean, yeah, like it is what it is. Like, why would Call of Duty go through the hassle of doing early access and monitoring that one. They know they could just put the game out. It's going to be buggy and broken as shit, but they're still going to get 25 million players and they're still going to think it's fun as hell. So there you go. That's my analysis on it because I really want to talk about this next story because it makes me laugh. Do it. And that next story is Call of Duty player takes stand against violence by starting taxi service in Warzone 2. So silly. This goes from IGN. So Activision Blizzard's Call of Duty Warzone 2 may be about pitting 150 super soldiers against each other in a fight to the death, but one player has opted for a less violent career. As reported by VG247, Reddit user Chris Sendumain has become an in-game taxi driver thanks to Warzone 2's new proximity voice chat feature. The player pulls up to other squads and as long as they don't kill him first, offers them rides to anywhere on the map. Seeking that five-star review, Kristen Dumain sticks to the main roads only so that players have a smooth ride to their destination, offering the typical small talk along the way. So this is all thanks to Proximity Chat, which I think we all know that is. But essentially, you can hear the voice chat of nearby enemies. And some folks are complaining about it because I was looking at the Reddit because it's just hilarious because like, oh, it's collusion. Ah, people are cheating. Ah, I just think this is funny as shit and like leave it to the internet to be like yo proximity chat I'm gonna start an uber business inside Warzone 2 and people are using it like I think that I want to be on that car and hear what small talk is being made while you're just like cruising around the map Rhea have you experienced this by any chance probably not but I haven't unfortunately I'm usually the DD in my Warzone lobbies where I'm like okay everybody get in the car we're going (laughs) because we almost always get killed by the zone coming in too soon but I did see another video on Twitter um, Big That's e. when you're not playing with me. That's you true. know me. I'm always like fucking hawking the circle. I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's go. You're like, okay, we gotta go, we gotta go. Pack it up, pack it up. But um, I cannot accept a death to being outside the circle as it closes. I will not accept it. Which sadly, it happens a lot. There's... Only when you're not playing with me. Well, okay. Wow. Well, you haven't been playing with me lately, so maybe I, know, I miss I'm that sorry. energy. I've been gone and I've been tired. You've been a dream. <laughs> now I'm done Valley. playing Dad of War, so we're good. Fair enough but yeah there there's a creator that i saw a tiktok video on twitter where he started singing in proximity chat he was like hey uh, i won't kill you if you start singing with me i want it that way and then the other person is like are you serious he's like yeah yeah start singing he's like you are get out my fire and the what? whole lobby in that proximity chat circle starts singing i want it that way together there's some really fun moments that can happen i love that <laughs> it's actually pretty cute and there's some opportunity for wholesomeness where you know Call of Duty suffers in that area sometimes, so I appreciate Sem- yeah, the way it. people wanna, are doing I it. I want to watch the wholesomeness. I will, yeah. I will. It's really cute, but yeah, there, there's some really fun emergent gameplay moments or just emergent sim life 
moments and I'm here for it. Yeah. I, I don't like turn on proximity role. chat myself, but it oh. makes me almost want to do it. It's almost like women can't. Yeah. Oh I was going to say, I imagine the chat. chat would mostly be toxic, but if I were to have a role or a career in Call of Duty, that's what I would do. I would just drive people around with the expectation that they're going to blow me up when I drive up to them. But how do you do that? Do you just start, like drive up to someone like, don't shoot? Like how, how whatever, it's fine. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I guess. And they're like, okay. Hope for the best. <laughs> Moving on, in also in the news, Bayonetta 3, get out the way, because Bayonetta 4 is already in the works. This is a little bit of a, like, huh? Kind of a moment. like Because Bayonetta 3 just came out, and there was clearly some people mad about some of the things that happened in the narrative of Bayonetta 3. And I haven't played enough of the game to talk about it yet. It's in my list that I'm working through for this year. But apparently, Hideki Kamiya. Oh my gosh. I'm normally pretty good with Japanese names, but Brittany helped me out here. I would have said Hideki Kamiya. So good job. Crushed it. I was close. Has teased that Bayonetta 4 is already in the works in response to Franz expressing displeasure with the ending to the last game. Kamiya saw notes that it wasn't conveyed, quote, correctly. Ooh. And that Bayonetta 4 will be an unexpected development. Like... Yo, you can't fix the game by making another game and trying to fix it. That's not how that works. You'd be better off pulling a Final Fantasy 15 and just like adding on some DLC. No, don't do that. For the love of God. <laughs> Please. <laughs> that was an emotional nightmare. We didn't even get like two of the expansions at the end, Andrew, because they're like, fuck it. There's no saving this hot. I love that game very much. I love the tweet, though, that Camille put out. He said, I didn't think it was unexpected at all, but it seems that the ending of Bayo 3 wasn't conveyed correctly to everyone. So I think Bayo 4 will be an unexpected development for everyone. After all, when Bayo 4 comes out, I'm sure there will be people who say, quote, you added that as an afterthought. So I'll say it now. And no, there you go. There's Bayonetta your 4 team reveal. Wow, I'm trying to get ahead of the Internet trolls and be like, <gasps> oh, yeah, I'm calling you before you're going to call me, bitch. That's exactly what this is. Not surprising coming yeah. from him, but there it is. So Bayonetta 4, man. I haven't played yeah. it enough myself. So we'll talk about yeah. that at a later date. Somebody, I'm assuming it's you, Brittany, <clears throat> dropped a gif of my husband, John Drake, double fisting shots of Diet Coke in the show notes, which means we're going to talk about a Disney game. It is. You know what that means. John Drake pays What's Good Games $50,000 a month to talk <laughs> about his products. God, I fucking wish. Dude, <laughs> I know, right? Like, like <laughs> I would put what's good games presented by disney on in all of our titles if we could get that kind of john drake what are you doing what are you doing um yeah so we do have a disney story so disney dreamlight valley's toy story realm gets a december release date Ooh, the new toy story realm featuring the likes of buzz lightyear and woody will be opening its stores (laughs) to visitors on december 6th i'm sorry i can't help myself you can't like it's been been a while since you've seen toy story i I know what woody is he's the cowboy i get it but you can't write woody down in a sentence and expect like an immature adult like myself to not laugh at it and make a joke but there you go there. now that you finished dad of war are you gonna hop back into dreamlight valley and is it gonna consume your life again i'm gonna be real i've been thinking about dreamlight I valley every day <laughs> every fucking day every goddamn fucking day i've been like when can i get my fucking fix I'm like a, i'm like an addict i need to go and clear those night thorns i gotta fucking harvest some iron ore i just I've been feeding for this, and it's been so hard because I know once I open it back up, I'm going to be down that hole and there's like a bazillion other games, so many other games I need to play. And I'm just like, but I got to go and see what Minnie is up to today. (laughs) I'm so ready. I'm so ready to go and check it out. Oh my God. Well, you got some time before Woody comes. 
god. I haven't even finished the scar stuff yet. Man, I got so much shit to Why do. Why would you name your character Woody? I'm sorry. Why would you do that? <laughs> We're still on that. <laughs> yeah, we are. This is a children's show. You're gonna name a fucking Woody? Like, hey, Woody. Like, He's what the fuck? He's made of wood. I don't give a like shit. Like, Woody the Woodpecker. Name him Pinocchio Jr. Don't name him Woody. He's an honest cowboy. There has to be someone out there noble. who can come out with a better name for a wooden toy than fucking Woody. I'm sorry. There has to be. You got lazy. Didn't, didn't yes. Andy name him Woody? Okay, then whoever wrote Andy, I'm not going to read Well, he's name. a child. <laughs> the parents bringing their child to watch the. Okay, it's fine. I'm going to let it go. I'm just saying Woody was a mistake. Let it go. Oh, God. Don't hold her back anymore. <laughs> you know, Anna and Elsa are both in Dreamlight Valley. <laughs> I wonder if Powerline will ever come to Dreamlight Valley. Oh, my God. That oh, would absolutely girl, make me drop hope. everything and play it immediately. Oh. Wait, are you a Powerline stand too? Yes. Are you kidding me? Did I me? know this about you? Did I know this How about you? you guys never talked about this? We haven't this. talked about this. I know every word to eye to eye and stand out. And I know all the dance moves. What? Hell yeah. Brittany, I, did you? What? <laughs> I can't. I can't. Bree, what? Why have you been withholding this information from me? <laughs> the perfect catch. You're lucky I'm tipsy. <laughs> Brittany, are you okay? Are you <laughs> Have you all heard the, the comparison that, that Goofy Movie is one of the best black Disney movies ever, right? I like, haven't heard that. No. It is widely regarded as a black movie. And it's one of those, like, everybody in our, my childhood and my adulthood agrees. Like, yes, it is the best black movie that Disney's ever made. No, it's just I part of our culture. That. I've never heard this theory. Is it because we both grew up white? Probably. <laughs> yeah. That's 100%. Just, I don't know. It's like the music. Like, it's a really great story about a dad and his son like like so for some reason like the black community has definitely co-opted it and Powerline is just part of our childhood permanently oh my god well fuck hi i mean i was always drawn to you admittedly it was your ass but first but now it's like okay <laughs> you're here how have we how have we been friends for this many years and doing content for this long and literally never had i don't this maybe we have when we're so drunk but i don't remember this conversation ever i i don't i, I really oh my well, now I have to play standout oh. at the Game Awards, and I will film a video of you two dancing and singing to it. Too. Yes. Okay. I don't know the dance moves, admittedly, and trust me, I can't do that shit. I never wanted to, but I will sing my heart out to it. We'll sing it. Oh, no, I'm not saying you have to do the dance well, moves. Well, Reno's the dance moves, like, so she's... You know, like, let the music take your body <laughs> into a new direction. Oh, like, yeah, like at Alexa's wedding, and that's exactly what I'll do. Fuck. <laughs> Oh, okay. This is wonderful. This is yeah, great. That was great. great. I feel like our friendship just leveled up. Like now it we're did. like in end game content. Like in Disney Dreamlight Valley, how you Stop. can level up your friendship. Oh, fuck. Oh, we've lost her. She's gone. She's gone. This is Animal Crossing 2.0. Oh, no. It's really got her. Honestly, once the Switch version goes free to play, because I'm telling myself that I can't buy it on another platform, that I must wait for it to go free to play. <laughs> I must only play it when I can boot up my Xbox because if I can take this game on the go, I'm done for. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. no. Sure. I'm very excited about Toy Story because I've now introduced my daughter to Toy Story 3 and Toy Story 4. Aww. But this is supposed to be just like a little side, like in case you missed it. But this has been a fun, this oh, has been yeah. a fun little road that oh, we've gone yeah. down. Let me just wrap up the news here. Volition is going to become part of Gearbox after Saints Row failed <laughs> to meet expectations, but apparently performed financially as expected. What? This is the weirdest story. We're not going to go too much into this because it's just a, in case you missed it. But we all know that Saints Row had some problems, but again, was a fun video game to play for some of us that played it and had a good time. But y'all may know that 
embracer group, the fucking like big daddy of video games now who's buying everybody, owns both Volition, the creator of Saints Row, and Gearbox, the creator of the Borderlands franchise. And they apparently were like, you both don't need to exist under our portfolio. Merge. And now they are This is merging. the weirdest story ever because the quote, and it's only a sentence, so I'm going to read it. The reception of Saints Row did not meet the full expectations and left the fan base partially polarized. Okay, blah, blah. Financially, Saints Row has performed in line with management expectations in the quarter. So are you telling me it's because fans weren't happy with the game that that's why this deal went through? That hardly like, ever moves right? the needle. That, <laughs> like, what? That, that's what I'm saying. Like, come on. Like, that's never the case. People complain and bitch about games all the time, but it doesn't change anything in terms of, like, to impact it to this degree. So I don't know. I'm rubbing my Kratos beard here. But what I'm reading between the lines here. Uh-huh is that financially the burn rate that Volition has as a studio, burn rate meaning how much money their studio spends to keep the studio going every month during development, their salaries, overhead, all that, is not going to pay off to make the next thing coming for Saints Row. Instead, what Embracer says, like, hey, we don't want to just like wash this entire team out to sea. There's clearly talent here because it met expectations. They essentially like at least broke even, if not like made a little bit of money. Let's instead take the talent on this team and merge them with another talented team and see what maybe they can do together instead of trying to say like, we're going to make more Saints Row. Yeah. Or they're going to be like, let's bring Gearbox and to help fix Saints Row. Those are like, to me, like the two scenarios. Either we're folding Volition into Gearbox and taking those people and having them work on Gearbox IP, or they're going to bring Gearbox in to help them fix Saints Row. But like, why fix Saints Row when you have Gearbox IP? Yeah, I mean, maybe they see the writing on the wall and they're like, okay, maybe they're like, okay, this game doesn't have much of a future. I don't know. Like, I loved Saints Row. It had its problems, of course, but I haven't had that much fun with the game in a long time. So yeah, we'll see what happens. Exactly. But- Studios are expensive to run, and uh, they're apparently, you know, just trying to manage their P&L. Continuing on, speaking of P&Ls, actually, I I should say, speaking of uh, Volition, who used to be run by uh, Deep Silver. Are they still run by Deep Silver? Yes. Yes, they are. Deep Silver used to also run Dead Island 2. Do they still run Dead Island 2? Who knows? Girl, I can't keep track of anything anymore. (laughs) There's too many moves being made. I was trying to put together a good segue, and I clearly failed. It's all right. Andrea, you failed at the segue. Dead Island 2 has been delayed until April 28th, everybody. Oh, no. The funny part is that the publisher and developer posted a statement on Twitter that says, the irony of delaying Dead Island 2 is not lost on us because, LOL, the game was announced in 2014. (laughs) As we are disappointed as you undoubtedly are, the delay is just 12 short weeks. The development is on the final straight now. We're going to take the time we need to make sure we can launch a game we're proud to launch. But are you going to be proud to launch this game? I feel like this game was doomed from the moment it was announced. Aww. They should have just let this game die in a cave somewhere. Aww. You know, I think this is going to be a good testament because I feel like when you talk about Dead Island, you get people frothing at the mouth or maybe that's just me in my little <laughs> echo chamber. But I think the IP still has, this is its shot, obviously, to bring it back and let's see if it, if it happens. So I'm not surprised that they went forward with it because I think there's a lot of power with that. But all about expectations to this day and age. This could very well be another Saints Row thing where it's like, you know, the people like me might really love Dead Island too, but it doesn't perform to expectations. And then like, eh, we gave it a shot. You know, my motto lately is, you know, I don't know what my motto is going to be tipsy, but essentially like just be optimistic, but have realistic expectations. That's my motto in life. Realistic expectations. Yep. Like Pokemon. And golf is finally coming to Nintendo Switch Sports. Yes. 
I'm actually genuinely excited for this because I played Nintendo Switch Sports. You're the only one that I know that was like, but Switch Sports. And I was like, there's no golf. This game is dead. <laughs> you know, it's and now fun. finally they're putting golf out. I'm like, it's too late. It's too late. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. See, see here's, here's the thing. Is so was it last week? I don't know what time it is anymore. Nintendo held this really adorable. It was called a Friendsgiving. Um, I was invited to it. We all like hung out online and we played Nintendo Switch Sports. And re- I hadn't played it before that. But we, the first thing we did was bowling. And mm-hmm. I did like a few rounds of it. And I was like, I forgot how much fucking fun this is. And I, I've, I've been playing Nintendo Switch Sports now. Because I'm like, oh, yeah. I forgot how much fun this is. And it was it's just fun. two rounds of bowling that got me hooked. Granted, all I've been doing is playing bowling. It was a good time. So it might not be too late. Don't forget that poll that mm-hmm. we had on us in 2006 when it came out. And we all bowled our little hearts content. And I was like, yeah, use your little wish trap. Otherwise, you're going to break your TV. It still is just as fun as it was, if not more fun. Although I will it blame. Is. I, I got to publicly shade my husband because we were playing together. And he couldn't figure out the fucking controls. And he went three rounds without hitting a f- single pin because he couldn't figure out how to throw the bowling ball. Oh, no. Jason, no. Oh, yeah. What? Oh, yeah. He couldn't figure out. But also, may I just remind you that the game is almost identical to what it was in like 2006. <laughs> I'm not making excuses for him. I'm just saying it wasn't my fault. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what happens when you fucking marry a fake gamer boy. (gasps) Oh, shit. This is actually a test to see if he listens to the show because he says he does. But we'll find out. The Internet will tell him. We will find out. (laughs) (laughs) Jason, we love you. (laughs) Also, it was great to see you in Florida. Okay, so that is it for the news this week. <laughs> wow. Unhinged episode. This is a great way to end the year. <laughs> oh, my God. And because it's Thanksgiving week here in the United States, there may be a possibility of other news coming out this week, but not likely yeah. because a lot of people here are taking the week off or a short week, as they should during a holiday. When we come back, we're going to talk about what we've been playing. And don't forget, a little bit later on in the episode, we're going to be talking to the one, the only, Cliffy B himself. Stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back. Back to the What's Good Games podcast. This is the second segment where we talk about what we've been playing at any preview events we may or may not have been to. But before I tell you about my time with Pokemon Violet and Reed tells you about her time with Call of Duty, we want to give a shout out to our elite Patreon. Patreons? I mean, we only have one Patreon. Elite patrons. <laughs> Surprise! We have like 18 Patreon pages. No, we don't. Um, yeah, we want to give a huge shout out to our elite patrons. It is the time of the month where we misread your names, mispronounce your names, but hopefully you will still love us unconditionally and without people like this supporting our show what's good games could not exist so we would ask do not skip ahead please listen to us butcher these people and give them their proper <laughs> shout out the one that they deserve you ready to do this free ready to i'm ready own this all right i will start with robert griffin we have fargo brady ryan saffel bill rosas tyler adams her skin james casual blasphemy Trick 24. Omega Buster. Oh, I made that Jason really sexual. Buck. I didn't mean oh. to. I don't know. I think it was the Buster. It's fine. Marooned at Noon. <laughs> Daniel Hall. <laughs> Eric Z. Dracos 3442. Uh, Chewie Scottson. Mick Ed, the nanobiologist Abramson. Access Oddities. Tara Bruno. Trent Berry. Sean I. Brian R. Johnston. Justin Foshi. Patrick Landry. Not to be confused with laundry. <laughs> Punctified. Rob Leonard. Patrick Higgins. 
Kenneth Stimmel. Trent Pennington. Ferris Atia. Jessica Bloom. Patrick Weller. Matthew Goddard. Noel Navarez. Chris Wang. Tyler McCall. Adrian A. Rock Williams. Shad Jackson Burgess. Gary Peck. Dale Sun. Robert F. Frimmering. Carl Milner. <laughs> Marcus Ian Brown. Pete Shoemaker. Wall of Bill. Fair. Teresa Enert. <laughs> Jason Demers, fake so gamer I'm guy. I'm thinking, I know fake gamer boy Jason Demers, and then Wall of Bill. Like, I imagine Bill is just a wall, and it's just like a, a wall of his face, and I just can't get it out of my head. Alex Rogopoulos. <laughs> Andrew Cotton. Elmo Shell. Gio Corsi. Crispy Koala. Again, bad thoughts on that one. <laughs> Ozzy Mejia. Nicole Humphrey. And the one and only unnamed producer, John Drake. Unnamed producer with a name. Thank you all <laughs> so, so much for your support on patreon.com slash what's good games. We know things have been different the past year or so, but we, from the bottom of our heart, appreciate your continued support. And, you know, it just, it just makes us feel warm and fuzzy. And we appreciate that y'all appreciate the work that we do. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And with all that said, time for me to talk about Pokemon Violet. Oh, boy. Take a deep breath. (laughs) You know, okay, let me just get it out of the way. Technically, it's an absolute nightmare. There's absolutely no excuse that this game runs the way it does, looks the way it does when you have studios like Monolith making lovely, beautiful games like Xenoblade Chronicles 3 with this huge, expansive world, and the frame rate is just like butter. Of course, like in the draw distance, sometimes there's some slower animations, but I mean, this is just, I think, an example. This falls on Game Freak. This doesn't fall on Nintendo's hardware. I just think Game Freak didn't have the time, the resources, or the fucks to give to make this game run like it should if you are, what, like the number one grossing video game in the IP. It's fine. It's not. Actually, no, it's not fine. There's no excuse for that. And it's really weird because I'm playing Pokemon Violet. Jason's playing Pokemon Scarlet. And his game runs better than mine. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's a Scarlet or Violet thing. So... If anyone is playing either of these games, like, let me know if you've noticed that as well. You know, like, things in the background, literal stop motion. There are these cutscenes, or not even a cutscene. It's like, okay, fade to black. Now we're in a classroom, and here's all your classmates, and your teacher's giving you a speech. They're kicking their feet around, but it's like, frame, 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 frame. It's it's just completely unacceptable. Things don't know when they want to pop in or pop out. But with all of that said, this game is fucking fun and I can't <laughs> wait to play more. It's just what we do as Pokemon fans. We expect it, but we still play them and we still buy every single game that comes out. Do you think this game should have been delayed and <sighs> Nintendo didn't delay it because they don't? Because I feel like this is a big dent in Nintendo's we never put out unpolished games armor. Mm. Right, because that's the thing that we always talked about forever with Nintendo is that their games are always like pretty flawless. And it sounds like this game is not flawless. Oh, it's bad. It's one of the worst running games I've played in a very long time. There's just literally no excuse. And I know they're, I don't want to call you apologists, but maybe I will, that are out there saying, oh, Game Freak is just so inexperienced in open world games. This literally, no, no, no. Don't even try to pull that. That is absolutely not an excuse. They have excuse. too much money for they that argument to They have too much to money. You, we 
all saw how Sword and Shield ran. Like, it was fine. But this is just on a whole nother level of bad. Like, I'm just going to call it what it is. No mincing words. It's bad, bad. One of the, like I said, the worst running games I've played in a very long time. And it's bullshit that they release this game like it is and thinking it's any form of acceptable. I'm happy that this is getting a lot of attention. I'm happy that this is one of the lowest reviewed Pokemon games in a long time because it needs to be. This needs to be like there needs to. I don't want to say like an apology put out, but there needs to be an acknowledgement from someone at the executive level that says, yeah, this is bad. And we acknowledge it's bad because we're at the point that I think all of us Pokemon fans saw coming. But now we're like, okay, no, this isn't acceptable because we've all seen and I've talked about it for years. This game just has so much potential. This IP has so much potential. But from a technical perspective, it's never lived up to that. It's not okay. It's just absolutely not okay. So I'm happy it's getting shit on. It needs to because this needs to change in the future. With all of that said, like I said, this game is so much fun. I love it. And that's why it's such this weird conflicting thing going on with me. There is so much game in this. And I love the open world. It's such a great touch. It's literally like you can go anywhere you want, do whatever you want. You have these three paths you can do, Starfall, Victory Road, or the Path of Legends. I'm doing Victory Road right now because I like to have OP Pokemon. I have my Lechonk. He evolved into something that I won't spoil because I don't know how many people have played with Lechonk yet. But the puns in this game, the new Pokemon in this game, they are so much fun. It is an absolute blast just to live in this world. The towns actually feel and look like towns when it doesn't look like they're running at like five frames a second. All of the buildings are like intricately built out and there's like upstairs little cafes and just people doing things and the writing and the dialogue is so much more engaging than any other Pokemon game has been before. And that was also one of my biggest critiques is all the NPCs sounded the same. There was no personality to hardly any of them unless they were a main character. But now I find them to be fun and interesting and I want to talk to everybody. So I'm really pleased with that. Again, I'm only like several hours in, so I have a lot more of this game to play and I plan on milking it and taking my time with it. I have been spending some time in co-op with Jason, but the only thing that he and I have been doing together is just kind of running around areas together. Like maybe if we find a rare spawn, I'll catch one for him and I'll trade it to him later. But we haven't done any raids or anything like that. And the co-op seems to run pretty seamless. So like props to Nintendo for building an online system that like actually works pretty well within the game. But so far, we haven't been able to do really anything together. So, I mean, I think the co-op is like fine. But you know what we're finding is that we just end up getting separated anyway, unless we're like very strictly like following each other. You know, sometimes like, okay, follow me this time and we'll go. Otherwise, he'll go one way, I'll go the other way. And it's like we may as well not even been playing co-op together. But whatever, that's been kind of an interesting development. But anyway, the TLDR is this game runs like trash. It's completely unacceptable. I'm glad it's being shit on. I hope Nintendo addresses it. That said, this is probably the most fun I've had with a Pokemon game since Blue when I was a little kid. This feels like a true step forward for the franchise. It feels like Game Freak finally, like Rebecca Valentine said, has struck gold. But unless they can fix the technical issues, this game won't realize its full potential. And it's just an unfortunate thing. But anyhow, yeah, that's where I'm at. Jeez. That's wild to hear. And I fully expect that these technical issues will not deter its worldwide sales at all. Because Nintendo, as a platform holder, is just immune to that. I really think they are. I think that their diehard fans and even their like casual fans are like, it's fine, whatevs. And everybody will like hold everybody else over the coals for it. But like Nintendo, nah, 
no big deal. It's okay if the game runs like trash. And also, what's care. interesting is that Nintendo, and I'm looking at this to get confirmation, has been issuing refunds for people who have been asking hmm. for them. Not everybody, but Wow, really? You never hear about Nintendo doing no, that. No, you don't. So people are posting it that they got a refund within an hour. Other people are saying that they didn't get their refund. When user claimed that the customer service rep told them that, quote, given the situation regarding the state of Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, she was going to elevate their case to ensure the refund was approved. So I think what we all just really... So they know the game's yeah, broken. I, I think what we all just want is an acknowledgement. Just acknowledge that your game runs like trash because otherwise it's just starting to feel really icky, you know? Mm-hmm. Really icky. It's weird. Like I said, like Nintendo is the always polished publisher. It's really shocking to me to hear that the game is this broken from a technical perspective because Nintendo doesn't put up broken games. I'm really surprised they didn't just delay because clearly this game needs more time in the oven. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's Game Freak gets a certain pass. I don't know how that goes. Are they exempt from that reputation? Like, who knows? Or is it that they have nothing else to push for holiday if Pokemon's not out? Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's probably what it is. Like, what else they got? You got Bayonetta, but that's already come and gone. But that's not first party. And that's not first right? party, right. So, I mean, unless I'm missing something, which I don't think I am. But yeah, so it, it's a whole thing. Like, it's going to be really fascinating to see how this pans out. So I have a question for you both. Do you do you feel like this reflects on Game Freak more or the leadership of Doug Bowser more? I mean, the leader is always going to take the hit, no matter yeah. if it's his fault or not. I don't think it reflects on Doug Bowser as an individual, because Doug Bowser is a wonderful person sure. who I've had the pleasure of, of interacting with <clears throat> many times, including when... I worked with Nintendo, but I think this reflects more on Nintendo's policies and how they may be shifting. We know that Nintendo was one of the many publishers that got hit very hard during the pandemic and their workflow because Japan as a country was not set up infrastructurally to handle work from home with these really tech heavy fields in the same way that a lot of other countries were. And so even though they weren't open about how difficult it was, a lot of Japanese developers really suffered their workflow during the pandemic. And just now starting to come back online, trying to get back up to speed. And I imagine that Game Freak is no different as, you know, like a Japanese heavy company. Clearly they have other branches in other parts of the world. But I think that has clearly something to do with why this game wasn't ready And it's frustrating that Nintendo wouldn't just like take the hall pass that literally everybody else is taking and saying, hey, we need more time. You know, this game has been in development for three years or four years all during the pandemic. It's been hard. We need like six more months or whatever. Everybody would have been like, cool, bro. No problem. I can't help but feel that they're testing the water with this. And I think it's going against what they had hoped because, you know, they're able to release this game in the state it was. And like you said, this is all they have for holiday. And it's going to sell and it's going to make them so much money. So from a financial perspective, like, yo, it's going to look really good and their decision's going to pay off. But I don't know if they anticipated the amount of feedback that they're getting at the intensity that they're getting it. And that's why I'm hoping this is a wake up call. But again, like, I don't know. I don't know if this is something they're going to care about enough to change going forward because this is not a hardware issue. This is a development issue. And we'll just have to see. I just hope that, yeah. I'm kicking a dead horse here, but it's very disappointing. But also, I love this new direction, but I'm just like, I literally, ladies, had to get up and grab a shot of whiskey because I was so frustrated by Aww. it. Because you know how much I love Aww. this, how much I love this series, yeah. right? And so it's just such a disappointment. Yeah, it's hard when the thing you love doesn't live up to expectations. Yeah. Yes. It's tough. We've all been there, you know? Yeah. 
couple times. <laughs> we don't need to name names right now. It's fine. <laughs> but, you know, we've all been there. But I guess it's, Here we it's go. almost like a mirror situation. Something that's super fun, but not living up to expectations. Speaking of Call of Duty Warzone 2.0, <laughs> super fun, but broken. <laughs> Very broken. And, and I've been playing quite a bit of Warzone. So to be clear, I've played a lot of Warzone, which is their battle royale. Like there's a map, 150 players killing each other. I've also been playing a good amount of DMZ, which is similar to Tarkov, if folks are familiar with with that game where you're dropped in, there's a, a map populated with lots of AI enemies and strongholds where you, you go in, you take them out, they come in waves or they're guarding something and you get a bunch of loot. If you're skilled enough to kill them all and then extract, like do a helicopter call in and, and extract yourself, you get to keep that loot for your next round of DMZ. And there are also other players, but far fewer than in Battle Royale. So that's the, the two different modes that are included. And they're both really fun. And it surprises me how different each one feels like each one has a very different pace. Uh, DMZ has a, you know, a creeping fog of, you know, a dead zone cloud that comes in just like you do in Battle Royale. However, you feel like you can take your time a lot more in DMZ because the point is to loot. Whereas in Battle Royale, a lot of the times the point is to kill the other players. So they just have a different pace to them. And what what I'm really, really enjoying is going back and forth between the two. Because of course, as you know, through Call of Duty, whether you're playing multiplayer or the campaign or DMZ or Warzone, all the guns are the same across each one. However, when you get to Warzone, they pare down all of the attachment management and you see a gun on the ground and it has two of three little check marks above it saying like there's two attachments on this gun. So, you know, okay, it's probably a scope and a stock. If you see five attachments, you're like, oh, that's a fully kitted gun. You pick that one up instead. And so you start to try to experiment with different guns based on like how good it is when you see it on the ground and just keep moving. There's not a lot of that micromanagement. So again, the pace is much faster. In DMZ, you still have the same method of, of communicating what attachments are on the gun that you see, but you feel like you can take your time sort of shopping around and seeing like maybe this enemy dropped a slightly better one and maybe if I go into one more building there will be a box with a different version of something else that I like like an SMG over an assault rifle so you do slow down a lot more and because you know there are more AI on the map than other players you feel like you can take more time because AI are difficult but easier to kill usually than another human opponent so I really really enjoy like I said going back and forth between these two modes and then also jumping into multiplayer which is behind a paywall so to be clear that is not included for free but it's all really just bringing me back to what I love about battle royales in general and what I miss from call of duty modern warfare right like it takes you back to that space where you jump in with your friends. You're going to have a story to tell at the end of it, whether it's everybody singing Backstreet Boys or somebody becomes a taxi cab driver. Like, like there's just so much, like I said earlier in the show, emergent gameplay and emergent storytelling that happens with the background of a really competent shooter. And it is a joy, honestly, even with the bugs, <laughs> similar to how you feel about Pokemon, Brittany. It's, it's still just so much fun. And you feel accomplished. You feel like you did something, especially if you're playing DMZ. You have tangible, you know, weapons and gear to take back into the next round with you. So you feel like you actually made progress and achieved something. So it's a good time. I'm having a lot of fun with it. You know, I have enjoyed my time with Battle Royales. And while I'm very bad at shooters in general, competitively, put me on like baby ass, baby mode on Call of Duty and I'll wreck fools. But like who won't? <laughs> Whatever. Um, but I think about this time that I was playing 
was it the first Warzone? I don't even know. Maybe it was a couple of years ago. It was Call of Duty, and I was playing with my dad, and he came over, and he can't handle two uh, analog sticks, but it, it sure. was fun anyway. He's the kind of guy who like looks up and just does circles. But he had finally <laughs> kind of gotten into the swing of things, and he was crouched underneath a vehicle. But what he didn't know is that there was an enemy in that vehicle. So the enemy just like mowed him over. He just like was like, <laughs> all right, someone literally just crawled under my car. I guess I'm going to step on the gas and like instantly kill them and get the kill. But it, it was so much fun, and we laughed, and we still laugh about that to this day. So I guess like the root of my question is, as me, someone who sucks at shooters, and my dad who can't like tell a controller from his ass and the whole ground, can we have fun playing this, I guess? Or are we just instantly going to get wrecked? That's where I definitely would point you to DMZ. Okay. As I said, the pace is a lot slower and you have AI that you're fighting more often than other players, other people in the world. So you have more room to sort of like get your, your bearings, like take your time coming into the circle. There's more, more objectives on the map that you can do. So you're not only having to do strongholds or take out waves and waves of enemies. Like you can just find a weapons cache and just, you know, figure out what's in there and sort through it and talk through, okay, I have this gun. I need more shotgun ammo. And then you working with your team to accommodate each other based on what you find in your loadout. And so there's much more of that, you know, developing the skills over time versus in Warzone or Battle Royale mode where it's go, go, go. Those circles coming in right now, we have to remove, we have to kill everybody immediately. Mm, So there's definitely a pace for everyone, I would say. Now, obviously, you're still playing a shooter, still need to be able to navigate through all of that. And as I said, it's the same guns, it's the same gear, it's the same, you know, kill streaks, all of that stuff. But it does give you more time to learn and to figure it out and to work with each other and, and start developing up those skills. Okay. Again, like I had so much fun playing those games with him and he's so bad and I'm so bad. So together, you know, we're bad together. (laughs) But it's just fun, you know, and I guess whatever, I guess getting shot by a person is part of the entertainment. (laughs) It is. And, you know, there's self revives. You can revive your teammates in Warzone. If you die for the first time, you can fight your way back out from the Gulag, which is a little different this time around than than last Warzone. So in Warzone 2.0, when you go to the Gulag after getting killed the first time, you have the opportunity to fight against against uh, an enemy pair of combatants and you're paired up with either somebody on your team or a random other person who just died. And if the two of you can take out the two of them, you get to come back for free. If you don't, then one of your teammates who's still alive in the war zone battle royale map can buy you back from a buy station if they can make it there. Usually people are camping them out, so it's tough, but you can do it. And even if you aren't able to kill the other two combatants in the gulag, at a certain point, after about a minute or so, the jailer comes out and it's like this big juggernaut looking dude, right? Has all this beefy ass armor. And (laughs) if the four of you who are in the gulag or whoever's left alive decide to take out the jailer, everyone comes back. So there's a lot of second chance mechanics in Warzone 2.0. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And that's a fun mechanic. Yeah, it's a fun, like, sort of prisoner's dilemma social experiment moment where you're like, okay, are y'all going to be cool? Are you, are you going to be cool? <laughs> it's like the Uber <laughs> driver in the game. It's like, are you going to kill me? If not, I'll give you a ride. It is. And, and proximity chat works in the gulag. So you could turn it on and be like, hey, don't shoot. Don't shoot. We're going to kill the jailer and all get out of here. And then, of course, someone's going to probably turn on you. And shoot They're going to kill the head, you anyway. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, uh, but well, but sh- even the war zone, it's still there's still some opportunities to like try again and get better, and you know it's not as soon as you're out, you're you're out. You have you have some comebacks available to you. Okay, well, okay, fuck. Here's the problem: is it sounds so much fun. Like I do love <laughs> hopping into these games, but it's like I don't know when I'm going to have the time. It could be time consuming, but the great part about Warzone and and also DMZ is you don't need to be great to to go in and 
do something cool. You know what I mean? Like you could jump mm-hmm. in there, you find an AK on the floor and then you find an RPG, then you find a, a mortar strike and all of that's just on the ground and you don't have to go play a thousand hours to earn it or unlock it with the battle pass. Like you literally just pick the stuff up. It could be the best weapon in the game and you just happen to find it in a chest and then you go wreck fools. And now you know, oh, I like that gun. I'm going to try to find it again later. So it's a fun opportunity for discovery. If you don't feel like grinding in multiplayer, this is a really great alternative. And again, it's free. And the crossplay has been working really, really well. I've been playing on my Series S here at the house, and Danny usually plays on his computer upstairs. We play with our friend Ka, who is often on his Xbox, oh, but sometimes switches Ka. over to his PC. <laughs> Kali Fadams from Spawn on Me. And then we've also played a bunch of rounds with Blessing, who I believe was on his PlayStation. And then P. Paris, who was on his PC. So all of what these systems can play together. And it's seamless, honestly. The in-game chat is not great quality, but just hop into a Discord channel. It's integrated into your Xbox now, and it's super simple. It's a lot of fun. I feel like you and I are in similar positions where we love these games and we're having such a great time, but we just understand. At least I feel like with Call of Duty, they kind of get a pass because I know online infrastructure can be really tricky, especially when you have 25 million players at your disposal. (laughs) So there's a little bit of like leeway there as opposed to um, my current situation with Game Freak and Pokemon. But I don't need to kick that dead horse again. Well, before we move on, is there anything else you want to talk about regarding Call of Duty? Or do you feel like I got everything I I needed to say out? I feel like I got most everything out. I will say I need to play more of the campaign and I'm upset that there is no co-op for the campaign because that is honestly what's keeping me from doing it. Because anytime I'm on, somebody else is on too and I want to play with them more than I want to play a single player. So co-op would be great because honestly, some of the best experiences I've ever had in any game is co-op Call of Duty. Like, now, yeah, you can do missions? Spec Ops missions, but okay, that's yeah, it's, it's not the full the full storyline. So there was a Call of Duty campaign, co-op campaign years ago. And I remember it was a Black Ops. I don't remember what it was. I really don't. But I remember Jason and I played it. And like it reminded me of back in the day when those campaigns used to be co-op that or there was another popular Medal of Honor that, mm. you know, that was a that was yeah. an IP that was popular and they had some really fun co-op campaigns. So I'm with you. Let's bring back the co-op campaign to Call of Duty. That would make me very happy. Well, this has been a therapeutic hands-on session, if you will. I felt really good (laughs) getting my Pokemon thoughts out of the way. So thank you for listening. And you've kind of convinced me to hop into Call of Duty, which makes me scared because I have so many other games I need to play. But maybe I'll invite my old man over and we'll try to wreck fools. We'll just get wrecked (laughs) ourselves. But it's I'll carry you. Don't worry. Please do. You you were wonderful in Fortnite. So I have no doubts about your ability to carry my weak ass. (laughs) But that'll do it for our hands-on segment. Coming up, Andrea and I spoke with Cliff Blazinski. You may know him as the dude that made Gears of War, but he's also done a lot of other awesome stuff, like he just released his memoir called Control Freak, my epic adventure making video games. His memoir is out now, and we read it and were able to talk to him about it. And that is coming up in the next segment of the Wesco Games podcast. Stick around. We'll be right back. Everybody, Andrea and Britt here with a very special interview. Please welcome to the podcast the author of My Epic Adventure Making Video Games Control Freak. Oh, we all have our copy. Oh, we're all part of the cool kids. <laughs> Clifford Blazinski. It's so good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. 
It's so good to see you guys. For those of you that don't know, I've known these two for years, you know, with convention life, you know, being interviewed and hanging in hotel lobby bars with everybody in the video game industry. And I haven't seen them in person in like three and a half or so years. So it's just nice to see your lovely smiling faces. Ditto. I have very fond memories of doing many tequila shots with you and your wonderful wife at PAX. So I I, I still drink, but I don't do shots anymore. Yeah. I mean, trust me, they get rough as we get older. That is for sure. Yeah, when the doctor's like, you might want to pump the brakes a little bit. You're like, oh, shit. Okay. Okay, fine. Fine, if you insist. As Brittany takes a a pull from her bottle of whiskey, that's right there. Oh, you go, Glenn Coco. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm on, like, shot number two. Listen, I love my child, but he's been a handful today, and this is my emergency stash. Go for it. Uh, Kids are a lot of of work. That's why I don't really want to to have them. I I love being an uncle. The best part. Get enjoy him. Send him back at the end of the day. Yeah, my, 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 my 11-year-old niece is like my, my nemesis. You know, she feels the need to point out my bald spot on a regular basis. <laughs> oh, kids are so mean. I'm like, apart from that, I still look relatively young, damn it. You know. <laughs> you do. You you look very, very um, youthful. Maybe it's just because you enjoy doing so many things that bring joy to your life, right? I and I, I get I always get like at least nine hours of sleep every night. Wow. Know? Okay, so plus, that's the real secret. You were holding out on us. Plus I, I I moisturize and like not enough dudes do that. You know, like every time I get out of the shower, I'm putting on like, you know, Kiehl's facial fuel or something like that, right? <laughs> you know, you're, you gotta you gotta treat yourself as they say, right? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. No, I props to you. Moisturizing is one of life's, you know, greatest treasures. Like everybody do it. Dudes are just weird about self-care in general. You know, it's just like I I saw a Reddit thread the other day that said, uh, is it just me or does every dude with like white underwear have uh, uh, skid marks on it? I'm like, (laughs) oh, no. What what the hell? Like, and so gross. um, Throw them away. I'm the youngest of five boys. And my nephew died when I was uh, he was 20 years old. This was about God, like uh, eight years ago. And I went up to Connecticut to visit my my brother, you know, who was grieving and went to the funeral and everything. This will get funny, I assure you. Again, being the youngest of five boys, we had to share a lot of stuff. And the second eldest, the, the eldest is the one who lost his son, right? The second eldest was the one. He wasn't always the brightest one, right? And so we had to share towels, you know, getting out of the shower. And I'm telling this to his 13-year-old daughter, the second oldest. And I'm rubbing my face in the towel. And I tell her, the towel smells like butt. And I pull the towel away and I see brown lines oh. on, on the towel. And I tell the child, this is a failure on two levels. <laughs> First off, <laughs> your, your dad did not wipe his butt enough. Second off, he didn't wash his butt in the shower. And I look at the kid and I say, what's the moral of the story? And she looks at me and says, buy dark towels. Oh, Oh my God. I feel like we really got off topic here. (laughs) Well, yeah, I wrote a book. You did. You guys had a chance to, to read it a little bit. Yes, we did. We were just we were just talking about some of the passages that we found uh, remarkable. I mean, this book really goes places. It you you know talk about some really personal stuff. You talk about how you got your start in your career, and you know some of the both amazing highs and some of the low lows that you experienced along the way. And it's really fascinating how different of an environment it is today in 2022. I think what would little Clifford do if he was growing up in high school 
now versus then and how different it was to get into video game development. I think even the idea of a guy like Tim Sweeney being like a nobody, like a no name, because everybody starts somewhere, right? And so I thought it was really fascinating kind of hearing, you know, how you first got into the industry. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what would you do today differently than what you did then? Because it doesn't feel like you could just write a letter to a company like Epic and be like, I got a job. Well, what I would do is I would take the path kind of like that Ed McMillan did, the guy who did Super Meat Boy, you know, and I, I'd, again, I'd start small again by myself. I tweeted to anybody that I could, would actually listen and, and, and see it. You know, I'd hope that whatever I would make would, would go viral, but it is exponentially harder in 2022 to break into the industry. One thing, you know, for a certain time period when I was at Epic, I was responsible for, you know, a lot of the hiring decisions. The number one thing we didn't care about was whether or not somebody had a degree. If you made a cool level and put it online and we found it, or if you made, you know, a modification of an existing game, or if you have a portfolio of, of animation or 3D art that looks good, that's all that mattered. You know, and there are some useful degrees out there that people, you know, can wind up getting in order to learn game design. But by and large, you know, we didn't care. So I, I honestly, like when it comes to getting in the industry, like one of the many, many mistakes I made when I had my own studio with Boss Key was to make too big of a game too fast and build the team too fast. So I wound up taking like, you know, two and a half years in order to get Lawbreakers out, maybe nearly three. And it was one of those things we should have just made a simple little game and shipped it to see how we all work together, right? And that's one of the things, you know, the phrase I often use is walk before you run and, you know, start small and then, you know, build it up. You know, Tim Sweeney's first game in like the very early 90s was called ZZT and it was basically ASCII art, you know, just like goofy little symbols. And then, you know, he figured out how to make uh, Joe of the Jungle, the platform game, and then, you know, started slowly but surely building Epic. And I'm pretty sure he's setting the path to be the richest guy in North Carolina right now. Oh, and, is he not yet? Uh, well, I mean, on paper, because, you know, he's still as a majority owner of the company. Right. But, you know, he's the single largest uh, landowner in the state. He's really, really big on conservation. He snatched up a whole bunch of acres and acres in central North Carolina because he loves just going for walks in the woods. And there was, you know, some species out there that were, you know, teetering on the bridge of extinction and whatnot. And instead of, you know, some Sentex developers coming in and bulldozing it, Tim, you know, he's using his money for that kind of good. And, you know, he's he wants to take over the world. You know, he wants to beat Apple at, at their own game and things like that. You know, that's, you know, Epic is essentially his family. And the thing was, is, um you know, I went to a, a Hurricanes game with my, my old, one of my old bosses, uh, the VP Mark Rain, the other night, who's done rather well for himself as well. And the thing is, is... uh. You know, they were totally fine with the book. You know, the, my old PR handler, handler Dana Cowley, you know, she read it and we had drinks the other night and she's totally fine with it. And the main epic PR person was totally fine with it. That was one of the weights in my shoulders is, you know, I wanted to make sure I'm, uh, technically I'm still under NDA, but it's not like I'm in the book saying this is the real secret behind what makes the Unreal Engine work. What it is, it's it's a story of a young pimply faced outcast who found his way through video games and then ultimately managed to infiltrate the industry. So it's essentially a love story of me falling in love with video games, me falling in love with working in the industry, and ultimately those video games leading to me finding true love after the fall of the first marriage. Yeah, your memoir is honestly very fascinating. And I was telling Andrea this before we started, there was a little slight mix up as to when we were doing this interview. And so I hadn't read your book yet until yesterday I started it. And when I say I couldn't put it down, I just bulldozed through it in a day. Well, thank you. Yeah. And what I loved about it the most is it's it, it's written authentically. It sounds like you when I'm reading it. It's not full of that corporate like blah, 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 blah bullshit. And I think that is what made it really engaging. 
not only to see and learn a little bit more about you, and I appreciate how honest and vulnerable and transparent you were about your state of mind throughout the entire book, but also to hear a little bit about how the sausage was made and what the industry was like in the early 90s, kind of when you got your start, right? I think Palace of the Sea, you said, came out in 91. Is that when you built it? I, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, and I was three at the time. And so don't think about it. Don't think about it, Clifford. Get off, get off my lawn. <laughs> but seriously, like it's so fascinating because the, I, that, the fact that you could make a game and put it out on CompuServe, which I only knew as my internet provider as I got older. It, it was, was America really, Online before America Online. Yeah, it was just a really fascinating insight. So I guess for me, if you could just like kind of briefly, like what was it like to make a game and put it online and just, did you just hope someone would find it? Or um, how did you how did you market it back well, then? Well, this this was the era of shareware, right? Mm. And basically, if you could make like the demo version of the game or episode one, you know, the people could literally mail you a check. Like my mother had no idea what was going on because at our house on Birdie Drive in Laverne, California, people <laughs> would literally mail me checks, and I I, I literally would X copy the three and a half inch floppies and and put it out there because I just I knew from the age of six that I wanted to make games. The second I saw Space Invaders, and I get like holy shit, I can move things on, on the TV, you know, like, <laughs> the TV. And, and then you add in the fact that, you know, I, I was hungry, you know, to, to make cool games. And, you know, I, I wanted to, I didn't want to do the college route. I wound up going to Cal Poly Pomona for like six months. And when Jazz Jackrabbit hit, you know, I wound up, you know, making enough money to get my first car and get my first apartment. But the whole thing is I wanted to make stuff. Right. And like back then, what we do is, you know, the demos of the games on like CompuServe and BBS is we listed alphabetically. And so what you do is, you know, put it like in a little exclamation mark at the front of the zip file. Right. So it would kind of go to the top. Right. And then things would kind of just go viral before virality was even a thing. And it was one of those things, you know, Palace of Deceit did well for me. My game after that called Dead or Dream, I did with Epic, which was created when I was on the, the acne drug Accutane, which I think is bad now because it caused kids to get depressed and some off themselves and whatnot. And still, you know, when Tim, uh, you know, sent a, you know, a demo of Dare, House of Deceit and Dare to Dream to Epic, because when I beat Jill of the Jungler or looked at the credits, there was a, a call for talent, like, come work with us. And it was like, boom. So, you know, young me being, you know, ever confident, you know, sent the, the, the demo discs to Epic. And, you know, I got the first assignment for Mark Rain from Tim Sweeney was to call me. And Mark is, you know, he's such a, he's a good dude, but he's a very boorish businessman. He's, you know, very, very loud, very brash. And, you know, I'm a young teenager and he's just like, uh, hey, well, we, we can redo the graphics and blah, 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 add music and things like for Palace of Deceit. I'm like, well, you know, slow your roll, dude. You know, and like I'm already working on the next game. And, uh, you know, that I made, uh, you know, Dare to Dream, which was my first flop. Lawbreakers was not my first flop, you know, I, I, but I, I'd like to believe I've had more hits than misses in my career. And uh, it was the Wild Wild West back then. And right now, you know, we're in the era where it feels like, you know, not only is there a tremendous wealth divide in this country, there's also a divide between super duper awesome indie games and AAA games. You know, like the latest Call of Duty, as I saw the video of that Amsterdam level, and it looks damn near photorealistic. My problem right now with the gaming industry, you know, I don't play a lot of games right now. The, the weather's still relatively warm, so I'm in book mode. You know, I literally have this on the back of my phone. Nice. <laughs> and my backlog is tremendous. I'm reading Eliza Schlesinger's book right now, which is really good. But the thing is, is, you know, teach a man to make video games. You know, he won't want to play one for the rest of his life. Because when mm. I see, like, those games, all I see is the, the dollars on screen. I see the burn rate for the studio. I see the marketing budget. I see families that are stressed out, but the, the developers having to work 12 plus hours a day for six, seven days a week. And, you know, unfortunately, crunch time is still 
a reality in the business because when you're making a game, often it's very much a moving target. And so it's one of those things that, you know, you can have a great producer like I had with Rod Ferguson on the Gears franchise, but at the end of the day, you know, you're going to have to, you know, move. Like we weren't even initially planning on having a multiplayer in the first Gears, but I saw the writing on the wall with, you know, GameStop and, and, and rentals and whatnot. And I didn't want the game to in the franchise to be a campaign rental. And I knew things like multiplayer, you know, versus and horde mode would help keep the disc in the tray so the people wouldn't, you know, sell it for the next Call of Duty, right? Um, so it really, we're, we live in a world now where all games, you know, apart from like cool indie platformers like Celeste and Shovel Knight, which were my jam on my Switch, I love those games. All games are services now. And I remember when DLC was just DLC, now it's called Seasons. Season one, season two, and I'm like, it's just more DLC, guys, you know? And yeah. You know, every single video game is vying for everyone's sole attention. And, you know, when you look at Fortnite, you know, and the, the crazy things Donald Mustard, you know, the, the main creative at Epic now has managed to, to, to crank out, you know, the licensing that he's done, you know, with Marvel characters and things like that. He's done a great job with it to keep that franchise and that game relevant. And so, you know, I tip my hat to them. And I'll tell you one thing, ladies, it was one of those things that my wife and I, you know, we've done well fiscally. We're comfortable. You know, I, I can work if I want to. She doesn't have to work. It's one of those things that I knew that so many people at Epic were, went on to make exponentially more than I, I did. And, but it's one of those things that I got a plaque in my uh, downstairs level that says comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. You know, ah, so very wise. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of those things, you know, OK, are, can we pay our bills? Are we comfortable? You know, we've got the restaurants that are doing well. You know, the Broadway shows are back in black. Um, and now I can just, you know, I feel like my life is a role playing game and, you know, act one, you know, is complete. And now <laughs> you know, the, the, the world is opened up and I can start to explore other industries, which has been utterly fascinating. Just real quick, seeing as much how the industry has changed so much, do you think you will ever be able to be passionate about making the game again? Or is the industry so different now that you're like, I don't want to touch that? Well, the thing is, is um, what I'm the mode that I'm in right now is just make IP. You know, make make worlds. Um, so I'm working. I don't know if you've seen the images that I've tweeted. I'm working on a project with a dog that's a superhero, Amazing. very much Don Bluth style, very much PG-13. The question I have for you know everyone out there is, what happens when the the, the six year olds who love Paw Patrol turn get a little bit older? What happens when they turn nine, ten, eleven, twelve? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> right. And so you know, I, I saw you know I'm friends with Jim Lee, you know, from uh, DC Comics, and I sent him uh, some of what I was working on. He's like, oh, okay, I could see a little bit of overlap with uh, DC's League of Super Pets, but I didn't watch League of Super Pets, but I'm familiar with it. But it looks very much like, you know, it's for eight-year-olds, you know? Like, I grew up with, you know, The Secret of Nim, uh, Watership Down, uh, things like that, right? And, you know, I want to very much do something that's very much PG-13 and, you know, see what can, what can happen with it. And the, the whole story for this is, as my studio is circling the drain, oh, but the idea is I'm using my game experience making this IP to keep in mind game mechanics should it be eventually become a game, right? That's to, right. to circle back to the original question. Will I be the one spearheading it? Hopefully not. I never want to be CEO ever again. You did say that in your book. I never want to be a CEO. Oh, the, the, Too much I responsibility. Swear, I, I got my first gray hairs from that, you know? And, <laughs> and you know, the thing is, you know, I'm, I'm too nice, you know, and to be a, a good CEO, you, to some extent, you have to be a sociopath. So what I'm doing is just developing multiple IPs right now, you know, paying for it out of pocket. So I own the IPs. I'm working with uh, Alex DeCampi. She did this book called Maddie with Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones did uh, Source Code, Moon, and the World of Warcraft movie. And he's David Bowie's son, for the record. And he and I are like Twitter buddies, so we're like DMing back and forth. And, okay, how's Alex to work with? And she's been nothing but a joy. She's just badass single mom living in New York City. And she, you know, it's just been an absolute joy to work with. And 
that's the thing that I missed. You know, I realized, you know, I got this tattoo a while back. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Harold and the Purple Crown. That was one of my favorite books growing up as a child. And, mm-hmm. you know, the idea, the one of the other projects I'm working on, I'm working with uh, Brian Burke on a project that's not been announced. He was J.J. Abrams' go-to producer from Alias to, to Cloverfield to Star Wars, Star Trek, and everything beyond. And he basically... Uh, says sometimes you just kind of will things into existence and i realized you know if i'm not if i don't have like you know an ip to get excited about if i'm not at dinner with lauren and i get an email you know from one of the artists and it's like oh my god look at the new concept art something that you know you typed up a character description or an environment and things like that just to and to see it come to life that for me that's just what's so so fucking rewarding and I realized, you know, the year that I wasn't doing that, uh, you know, I was very depressed after the studio closed. You know, my, I had to put my 13-year-old Australian Shepherd down. And then after, you know, his, his little shrine's right behind me. Teddy. And after, yeah, teddy bear. After the spontaneous crying stopped after a, a year or so, Lauren found this Pomsky uh, named, and it's just like basically a mini Husky, right? And she showed me the photo. I was like, boom, love at first sight. And the story, and she's basically been my muse for the dog project. And the story goes that, you know, uh, I'm friends with David and Dan from uh, the Game of Thrones showrunners. And, uh, you know, they invited, and we've been to a couple of the premieres before. We went and one in LA and whatnot. And then we went to the the final season premiere in, in New York City at Radio City Music Hall. And yeah, the final season was, but still, <laughs> we wound up uh, partying with the cast until four in the morning in their suite. And then we wound up uh, going, uh, you know, flying down to Charlotte, North Carolina, scooping up Little Lady, then taking her back to Raleigh and, She's been an utter dream, except for the fact she's going to be four years old on February 12th, which is oddly enough my birthday. Oh. Um, so, yeah, it's the the Matrix is sending me signals. Uh, so we named her Lady after Sansa Stark's dire wolf. And so she's my, my little mini wolf, and she's a perfect dog, except for the fact that, you know, again, about to turn four, she still isn't fully fucking potty trained. It drives, it drives us fucking crazy. Ah, uh, whose fault is that? Is that you well, or is that Lauren? <laughs> Lauren took her to the vet, and the vet says, standard, and says, wow, she's a really, really small bladder. Oh, well, uh, there you go. That must be it. I did want to ask sorry, you, no. just talking about, you know, being a creator and having so many years of experience working in and around IP, talking about new IP that you're working on. I mean, we touched on, on crunch culture. I would be curious to hear your your perspective as somebody who is, you know, deeply ingrained in creative communities. I feel like we've gotten arguments from both sides of people. Some people saying crunch culture is completely unacceptable. There's no reason anybody would want or should be working these hours. And then other people saying when I have my fire lit, I just want to keep working as many hours as possible to get this thing done because I'm just so passionate that I don't want to stop working on it. And sometimes that mindset is tough for people who aren't creatives to understand. And I would be curious to know what your perspective is. As always, the truth is somewhere in the middle there. You know, the times that I had a crunch, you know, at Epic, I enjoyed it to some extent. It's the extended crunch that starts to get you. You Mm -hmm. know, when I was living in downtown Raleigh with a my ex-girlfriend and you know there uh, there's a little burger joint that was open late across the street from the, the old condo i remember just sitting there you know having a thousand yard stare like if i'm getting new new builds of the game and you know the tweaks to the cover system or playing through somebody's new level or evaluating new art and seeing new concept art and things like that yeah you know i, I didn't mind the hours um but when you're you know play testing the game incessantly over and over and over again it's the definition of insanity expecting a different result right and you know i always say you know, testing and, and QA, it's basically like 
you know, telling somebody to go around and touch every single wall in their house and then tell them to do it over and over again repeatedly you know, in order to make sure you, know, you, you don't fall through it. It's, it's testers are some of the most underrated people in the business and they're often the most underpaid and underappreciated. So there was, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. There's times I did not mind, you know, working, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 hours. And there's other times where it just really wore, wore me down. And, um, I think about myself being 47 years old right now. And I'm like, the thought of doing that, I'm like, Jesus, no, like, like that's just sounds exhausting at this point. But, you know, I think when you're younger, you, you know, you have the stamina to do that sort of thing. And I think, you know, it's a combination of people make the kind of experience and the kind of environment where people want to be there, but also it made the kind of game that people want to put the hours into it. And then if, if you're doing that, you know, then people will hopefully, you know, stick around, you know, for the extra hours, but sometimes, you have to, you know, have mandated crunch at many studios. It's it's a very common thing. You know, my uh, friends uh, over at Squanch Games, you know, are working to ship that game high on life with uh, Justin Roiland right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're having to stay a little bit later. You know, it's not like, you know, 16 hours, but, you know, I'll go out for a pint with, you know, my boys, Mikey or Demond. And Demond's like, yeah, I'm, uh, I might be a little late for karaoke on Monday nights at the beer garden because I got a, I got a few more bugs to fix. And ultimately he fixed the bugs and showed up at like eight. But it was still one of those things that, you know, closing the patient is a motherfucker. And, you know, every studio is different. Every game is different. So I think it's one of those things, do your best to try and mitigate crunch. But sometimes it actually has to happen, which is an unfortunate reality of the business. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we talked about it on our show several times. You mean working in, in video production and you now working, you know, on, on stage as well. Like the it, part of working in creative fields is it's kind of expected, but you're right. That's it's the sustained crunch. I think that clearly needs to be needs to be addressed. But there's so much to unpack in this book. Obviously, we can't talk about all of it in the time that we have with you. But I did want to ask you about where you see some of the innovation happening because you were at the ground level of some really foundational pieces of gameplay mechanics that really are instrumental in the first person shooter genre at large and the third person shooter genre and gameplay feels like sometimes it's not as innovative as it was because there's so many people making games i would love to hear from someone like you who's seen so much what do you get excited about what do you see happening in game development right now that you think is really awesome i just love retro games like my mother-in-law I was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer that had metastasized and we had to go back and forth during the era of COVID to Louisiana to watch her decline and ultimately watch her pass, which was really, really rough. And working on my book and playing my Switch was just like my savior during that time period. You know, we have this bomb ass game room upstairs with our PlayStation 5 and honestly, I haven't even fired up PlayStation 5 yet. I'm happy I got my hands on one. But innovation is one of those things that I read this book, I think it's called Hitmakers, right? And basically the guy spends the entire book explaining the key to success is often to take something that feels familiar and twist it a little bit, right? You know, Star Wars was essentially, you know, that movie Hidden Fortress, you know, but in space, uh, the Mandalorian is essentially a Western, right? And that was, that's the thing is, you know, the next great innovation, you know, it's, it's going to be something, you know, that feels kind of familiar, but again, new, you know, cover was one of those things. We weren't the first people to do cover systems, you know, Winback had it like back in the N64 and whatnot, but if you can find something that somebody tried all those years ago and failed, and then find a way to do it right. In my opinion, that's one of the, the ways to you know find innovation. But ultimately, you're you know you're panning for gold, and you never really know what's going to happen. You know, it could be a multiplayer experience, it could be something that's physics based. Uh, you know, we, we've seen the rise of games that are just ridiculously fucking hard, like Elden Ring and this and you know the the Bloodborne type games, right? 
and uh, Dark Souls and whatnot. And it's one of those things that, you know, it, it might not come out of a typical AAA studio. You know, you find that, you know, Counter-Strike, you know, was a mod for, for Half-Life. Uh, the MOBA genre, you know, was a, a Warcraft mod, right? And often it's not necessarily going to be, you know, the big wigs at, you know, Microsoft or Activision that come up with the next big thing. It's going to be somebody, you know, in their parents' bedroom or in their garage that, you know, has the the the, the stones to make something that's going to completely blindside all of us. And I would always be asked during interviews uh, in the industry, where do you think things are going to be in three to five years? And I'm like, no one fucking knows. Um, you know, yeah. no one could have pre- predicted that, you know, Fortnite pivoting to a PUBG style, uh, you know, player versus player would cause it to explode. And so it's it's anybody's uh, guess. You know, all I know is I know how to make worlds and I'm not going to stop doing that. Yeah. It, and I'm with you, Cliff. Like, I love retro games because back then it feels like folks weren't as afraid to fail and try new things. And I guess I'd be curious to know your perspective on that as well. I'm assuming from my standpoint that it's games are a lot more of a financial investment nowadays. And you're dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars and not just a one man, you, for example, you know, making your games on your own. So how much of an impact do you think that has on innovation in today's industry? You can do like the, the scale. It's kind of like, you know, um, on a, a how I met your mother, the crazy hot scale. Right. When he's talking about, you know, women, which in hindsight is some, somewhat sexist, the higher the budget, the less the innovation. Right. Because, you know, it's the powers that be, you know, who are keeping an eye on the coffers and everything like that. You know, they want to go with like what's what's tried and true. I still like, you know, I have people I have friends who worked on Halo Infinite. Microsoft, you know, plugged my book and everything like that. But, you know, it's one of those things where you look at Halo Infinite and, you know, it's kind of open world and things like that. You know, it didn't ship with, you know, co-op and Halo for me is co-op. Right. And it's one of those things, you know, like, I, you know, we have our copies upstairs and apparently it just came out, you know, four player co-op in it. So I might actually, you know, give that a go on a rainy day with with Lauren. But again, the more expensive, the less innovation often is the case. And, you know, it takes serious stones at an executive level to make something like that. When you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars and an old executive from EA taught me why I, I said to him, you know, we went out for a pint one night and he, he said, how come more risks aren't taken in the AAA space? And he says, more often than not, if you, you know, stick your head out, you get your neck cut off. Right. And, you know, the people who take the risk on a new IP on something that could be innovative, you know, it's a, it's a gamble whether or not it fails. And, you know, the people, if you're a publicly traded company like, you know, EA or whatnot, you know, the, the shareholders, you know, uh, the people that make the games and the, the executives are beholden to the shareholders and they have to, you know, do their quarterly kind of calls and explain why the stock went up or down and, you know, and they have to sing for their supper and, and face the music. So it's really a complicated conundrum of everything, but mark my words, I think the next big innovation will come out of a small studio of like, you know, six people, you know, working in their, 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 you know, their garage or their basement because they got nothing to lose. And that's honestly, in my opinion, the key to innovation, you know, having nothing to lose. Are you all in on the metaverse or are you like, nah, not for me? What you mean? You mean PlayStation home? <laughs> oh, See, right. I, I was always go to second life. I'm like, isn't second life just like the first metaverse? Isn't I think there's a quote from Gabe Newell that says everybody who's gushing about the metaverse has clearly never played an MMO. <laughs> right. Yes, that's and it's it's like you know everyone's gunning for it. You know, it's it's these buzzwords. You know, like cryptocurrency and NFTs and metaverse and things like that. And every every almost every story that's been written about the metaverse has been a cautionary tale. By the way, and the people are like, now let's make this. It's like, wait, uh, hang on. Um, the thing is, is you know, I'm a you know, full disclaimer. I own it. Still own a fair amount of Facebook stock, which is now completely in the toilet um because yeah. you know zuck's making this like horizon worlds or something you know he's doubling down on vr you know i love vr i invested in oculus apparently the quest pro is the new one is pretty pretty darn impressive 
But the thing is, is they need something that looks good, right? They need something that's compelling, you know, like they need the world of Warcraft for VR. You know, when it first came out, it looked okay, but you know, and Lauren's still playing WoW Classic, by the way. Nice. And uh, I remember, you know, I tell people like, you know, back in the day, oh, I made video games. I made this game Unreal Tournament 2004 and people be like, I play WoW. And like, <laughs> what everyone's gunning for is the one, the one experience, the one game to rule them all, right? And you know, they're basically emulating VR chat at this point. It's like, dude, like, it's gonna, I love VR, but it's gonna take a really series of compelling experiences to make people want to put the headset on. But I'll tell you one thing, with being the uncle with the nieces and nephews, you know, we got them all, you know, VR headsets uh, for the holidays last year. They're in it nonstop. And that's really? the thing, you know, kids are more willing to try new stuff than adults, right? And that's True. the thing is, you know, I remember when that, you know, the iPhone came out and, you know, they put like, you know, first person shooters and Minecraft on it. I'm like, there's no, there's no analog sticks. This is, this is garbage. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it, but kids, kids just adapted because kids are malleable like that. And I just remember uh-huh. seeing, you know, nieces and nephews playing these games and like, you know, just th- twin sticking, just touching the damn screen. And I people still try- can't get that down. Yeah. I'm bad no, at it too. It's, it's, but kids, kids learn it, you know, and so, maybe it's the tiny thumbs. I don't know, man. I, just, <laughs> I still, I still, have, I still have a Galaxy S10. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to ride this phone until the fucking wheels fall off. Lauren's um, like, get it, get, get an iPhone. I'm like, no, I, he's like, I'm not drinking the, the damn Apple Kool Aid. So you are officially an old man. It's okay. Well, I mean, we, we've just called it out now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do have, I do have a nice lawn that I prefer for everybody to stay off of. And, um, but the thing is, you know, the innovation will come from like garage bands, right? It'll come from small teams and then always look to the youth. I think it was Whitney Houston. I believe the children are their future, right? It's like, duh. And it's one of those things that, you know, kids, kids, kids adapt. And so it's going to come from left field. No one's going to see it coming. And then AAA is going to have to scramble in order to adapt. And, you know, if you look at, you know, League of Legends becoming the phenomenon it is. And, you know, the people at Riot, you know, they saw that the MOBA mod, you know, just crushing it. They're like, let's take this and let's adapt it to a AAA experience. And then next thing you know, they're packing the fucking Staples Center. I'm sorry. I think it's the... Cr- it's Crypto.com Arena, I think. Wait, really? Yeah, it's no longer... It hasn't been the Staples Center for a I few put, months I now. A th- I put $1,000 into cryptocurrency and whenever I check Coinbase, it's like like $200. I'm like, oh, great. That's another Kool-Aid that I refuse to, to drink. That could be a whole nother podcast episode talking just about just about Web3. But uh, we are getting to the end of our time here. But, you know, we talked about how, you know, you have other big projects going on. And, you know, all this talk about kids just kind of put in my mind. I was like, what if Clifford became a mentor of some kind. Is that something that you ever contemplated knowing you had this incredible, vast experience working with studios, building your own games, shipping massive games? Like that seems like incredible knowledge to share with the incoming generation. I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, there's, um, as a matter of fact, next Wednesday, I'm going to uh, meet with a small game development studio of 25 people and to kind of give them like a little bit of like an inspirational kind of talk to you know encourage them right you know it's one of those things that this gentleman came to my book signing that i had uh, on the first right and he drove five hours with his son and um you know i looked at him and i said you know he, he was eight i believe and i said it's never too early to start buddy you know if you want to make games you know i made my first main game at 11 years old but you know for him to you know his dad to drive him into you know see me in you know in front of a standing room only bookstore you know talk about the book that I just wrote about video games in the industry, that knowledge, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's gold. And um, I would, I would absolutely consider that. And I think something else that you have to bestow upon the masses is 
reading your novel again from start to finish in one day, it was very apparent, and you were very transparent about this, is how egotistical and insecure you were and how that's kind of an interesting combination. But as the novel went on and, and as I've gotten to know you as a person, it's very apparent that you have a new perspective on life, on people. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? It was some of the things that stood out in what you wrote was how you were rooting against John Romero and Daikatana, I believe is how you pronounce it and how it when that flopped you were kind of excited and happy about it but then later you're like that was really shitty I shouldn't have done that so I guess when it comes to personal growth I think I'd just like to hear from you what does that look like how does one begin down this journey of personal growth is it an intentional route you took or did it just happen with age and maturity well first off you're dealing with the case of arrested development right when I was 15 years old I lost my dad I lost in the Nintendo World Championships and I was molested by a guy I met online my brother thinks that was boom, that was me just frozen, you know, essentially still a big kid. You know, life with the losses that I've had, you know, in my life, you know, my, my father, you know, uh, at the age I'm at now, you know, dying of a heart attack, you know, my nephew that I mentioned earlier, uh, watching again, my mother-in-law decline, it really gives you perspective, you know, and seeing, you know, friends that are, are in the video game industry that, you know, have passed as well, that were in the industry for years, you know, and realizing, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, the comedian Patton Oswalt and, uh, you know, to the point where we're Twitter buddies. He came to town and I was DMing him like, great set, Pat. And he's like, oh, thanks, man. And, you know, he he wrote or did, he did his comedy special called Annihilation in which he said, you know, what his wife, Michelle McNamara, uh, who wrote I'll Be Gone in the Dark and helped solve the Golden State Killer case. She was on some meds and wound up with pneumonia and he woke up one day and she was just dead next to him. He says the hardest thing wasn't the day of my wife's death. It was the next day where I had to take my daughter to a playground and explain to her that mommy was gone. And he says, you know, the special annihilation, you'll go from laughing to crying, you're laughing to crying. And he says, um, Michelle, he used to ask her, like, how do I make sense of this world? Like, what, you know, what do I do? And she said, you know, it's chaos. Be kind. Mm. So that's why I got that on my arm, because, you know, it reminded me anytime I'm being a dick to my wife, that life's too short. And, you know, when you make enough money to not give a fuck, you have great friends and family and you find the love of your life. It gives you a tremendous amount of perspective and humility. And, you know, I, I somehow have this rep reputation of being a giant asshole somehow online. And I'm like, okay, um, I have always tried to be nice. And then people will reply like, oh, I met you at PAX and you were really nice. And I'm like, yeah, I thought I was supposed to be an asshole here. But <laughs> it's, you know, over all those years, you really get a sense of wisdom and a sense of it's chaos out there. So be kind. Mm -hmm. And that solidifies things for me. And, you know, writing this book was hopefully I make a little bit of money off of it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it was therapy working with, uh, you know, I worked with a guy named Todd Gold. He wrote Drew Barrymore's book, Little Girl Lost and other things. And he's fantastic. And, uh, you know, he taught me how to be a writer. And, you know, for me, um, you know, don't be a dick and always be learning. You know, and that's the, the truly intelligent people realize there's so much of the world that they don't know. And so they're curious and they, they dive into other businesses or other things that they could learn. Don't be a dick. It's the What's Good Games community motto. Like, Literally. We welcome yeah, everybody here. But if you're a dick, mm -mm, kick rocks. Exactly. And I have one more thing I have to ask. On OK. Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, <says> yes. <laughs> 19, in 1998, Lazinski rose to fame when he held a contest inviting visitors of his website to scan their cats on flatbed scanners <laughs> and submit the photos for judging. I just think this is hilarious because apparently that's what made you rose to fame, according to Wikipedia. And you mentioned this like in a few sentences in your book. But what the heck? is this i had a flatbed scanner because i was scanning like different textures that i picked up from like home depot and things like that in order to make uh textures for the first iteration of the unreal engine and i was a big cat person back then dog person now 
And uh, yeah, I had a flatbed scanner and my cat, you know, just it was warm and the cat, the, the, the lid was open and the cat climbed on it. And I was like, click. And <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you go to the Internet's Wayback Machine, you can actually find the website, by the way. I think it was cat-scan.com. And so I was like, OK, let's just make a stupid little contest for this. And, and what happened was cat people are fucking crazy because people would send in images of their cats. I, I type up descriptions of it. In hindsight, I should have sold the website for a fuck ton of money, but I was too dumb. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, the, the, hate mail I, the hate mail I got was just ridiculous. You know, it's, uh, somebody was like, you know, oh, your last name is, you know, Blazinski, you should have been roasted in the ovens with the other Jews, like shit like that. Oh my God, oh my God. what? Completely insane shit. And so what I do is I, you know, quote the emails that I got and I would, I would mock them, right? And that's one of those things I was snarky on the internet before being snarky and the internet was, was a thing, um, you know, going back to the something awful forms and things like that. But yeah. And also on my Wikipedia, somebody deliberately put a, a horrible photo of me up there. I look like Steve Bannon. I swear to God, they Photoshopped it. I don't know what the fuck happened there. <laughs> I saw anybody, that. I was like, that's sure a choice for someone to use. But Anybody, anybody who want to fix that, please <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a free game or something. I don't know. Or a book. I'll give you a signed book. <laughs> Speaking of the book, let's uh, take a look at it one more time. You guys can get my epic adventure making video games control freak. It is out now. We'll have the link in our show notes. If you guys want to click over and pick up your own copy. I'm um, Clifford. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. And thanks for having me. And there's a quote from ice tea in the back for the record. Ooh. I saw that. I mean, but I mean, we would be here all day if we talked about all the famous people, you know, so you two, are the most famous people I know. Oh, see, he yeah, knows how to I land see. the plane. Very nice. Well, thank you so much again for being on the show. I was so great to see you. And hopefully we'll see you and Lauren at um, one of the things in the not too distant future. It was great seeing you guys after all this time. And thanks again for having me. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. Take care. We want to give a big thank you to Clifford Blazinski for being on the show with us and talking to us about his book and everything that he's been through. And of course, to our friend Rihanna Manuel Pena for being on the show as always. Rhi, I know you can't be on the show I'm every fuzzy, week. I'm fuzzy, but I'm here. You fuzzy, but you here. <laughs> we're excited that we're going to be doing some fun holiday shows with you in a couple of weeks. And yeah, lots of good things coming up, everybody. And we look forward to you guys talking to us about, you know, what you guys have been gaming and what you've been up to. And hopefully you're having a nice week off if you're here in the United States. Go play some video games. Go outside and touch some grass. Eat some turkey until you fall asleep. You know, the leftovers because you're listening to this on Friday, right? <laughs> hopefully. Leftovers are the best. Yes. Oh, I'm dreaming about the stuffing with gravy that I'm going to be heating oh. up in the microwave already. Mm. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Bye.